Our passage this morning is in Revelation chapter 12, beginning at verse 1. A great and wondrous sign appeared in the heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven. An enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his heads. His tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour her child the moment it was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the desert to a place prepared for her by God, where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. Once upon a time, in a galaxy far, far away. <laughs> oh, man. So begins the Star Wars movies. This weekend, The Force Awakens will most likely set records. I well remember in 1977 as a college student going to the very first movie and being enthralled with this epic story, this cosmic battle between good and evil and how ordinary people could find a way to tap into the Force and be part of this cosmic struggle that's going on in heaven, in the universe. It's a powerful attraction for us. We get caught up in the drama of the story. Why is that? Well, I think it's because the Star Wars story has a shadow of reality to it. We live our lives on this earthly plane. We have to deal with bills and broken down cars and all the things we deal with here on earth. But the Bible reveals that there is an alternative world. But it's not far, far away. It's here. It's all around us. The spiritual reality where God dwells surrounds us and it's here all the time. We just don't have eyes to see it. We get glimpses of it now and then. But the spiritual world, we're told in the scriptures, is more real and more permanent than this world in which we live now. Take Christmas, for example. Last week, we looked at the Christmas story from an earthly point of view. The long journey that Joseph and Mary had to take from Nazareth, Nazareth to Bethlehem and the difficulty of finding a place to give birth as she's about to give birth. And then she has a long, painful labor, finally gives birth on her own and has to lay this baby herself in a manger, in a feed trough. Very difficult earthly situation. We do have angels who come break through from heaven, a brief foray, and they announce to these shepherds in the field 
that the King has been born, the Messiah has come, a Savior has been born, but then we're back to the everyday reality of Joseph and Mary having to care for this baby and having to run for their lives as refugees to Egypt. So you get this picture of this earthly story we talked about last week, but here's a question for you. What was going on in heaven during all that time? Was there another reality around us that we didn't see, that they didn't see? And what did his birth accomplish in the heavenly realms? We know what it accomplished for us when Jesus came and he died for our sins and rose again. He accomplished redemption and we put our faith in him and we received the gift of eternal life and were incorporated into Jesus' kingdom. But did it also accomplish things in heaven? Well, there's no way we can know because we can't see unless he tells us. And that's what I love about this passage in Revelation 12. This wild and crazy story gives us a vision, a snapshot of what was actually going on in heaven during the birth of Jesus on earth. Philip Yancey in his book, The Jesus I Never Knew, puts it this way. Revelation is a strange book by any measure. And readers must understand its style to make sense of this extraordinary spectacle. In daily life, two parallel histories occur simultaneously, one on earth and one in heaven. Revelation, however, views them together, allowing a quick look behind the scenes. On earth, a baby was born. A king caught wind of it. A chase ensued. In heaven, the great invasion had begun a daring raid by the ruler of the forces of good into the universe's seat of evil. Pray with me. Lord, as we look at this wild story, this revelation, this snapshot of what was going on in heaven during the birth of Jesus, we pray that our eyes would be open to this deeper reality around us in which we live and breathe all the time, but we just can't see it. May we learn to be people who live in the heavenly realities because of what we study today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So first, let's look at this birth, this crazy birth from heaven's perspective. Begins this way, a great sign appeared in heaven. Let me stop there. It's a great sign. Uh, uh, That means a miraculous event, a significant event. But notice what it says. This event happened in heaven. Now, wait a minute. This was a birth on earth, right? This was just a mom having a baby. But it says, no, this was also a heavenly event. Something happened in heaven when Jesus was born. So often what happens, I think, in our lives here on earth may seem very mundane. The little choices we make day by day to trust the Lord or not. But those events... I think this teaches us have a parallel in heaven. You may know the story of Daniel, where Daniel prays this prayer, this wonderful prayer, and finally an angel comes to him, and the angel says, Wow, Daniel, when you prayed, things were set in motion in heaven, and there was this huge war, and it took me 21 days to get here because of all that was happening in heaven because of your prayer." Isn't that amazing? Can you imagine the things we do on earth have eternal heavenly significance? And that's what we see here. This baby that's born has eternal significance. 
Then we're introduced to the first character in the story, a woman, it says, a woman clothed in the sun and the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of 12 stars. Who is this woman? Well, notice what it says about her. She's clothed with the sun. She has amazing glory about her. It says the moon is under her feet. This is a sign of authority. This woman has real power, real authority over creation. It says she has a wreath. It's really not a crown of ruling like a king. <clears throat> it's really the Greek word for wreath, a wreath with 12 stars in it. Are these the 12 tribes of Israel? Are these the 12 apostles? My answer would be yes. <laughs> I think this woman represents the people of God. It's Mary, yes. Mary is the one who gives birth, but she represents the people of God, the nation of Israel, the believing remnant, but also those who have come to believe through their teaching, through the apostles. It's us. First believing Israel, then all believers, Jews and Gentiles together. Notice she's a woman. Certainly in that culture, a woman being vulnerable and dependent. And yet, this vulnerable, dependent woman has incredible glory and incredible authority. Such is the church of Jesus Christ today. We are vulnerable and dependent. We don't have independent authority. We, we depend on Jesus. We trust him. We rely on his life in us. But we have great glory because he dwells in us. And we have authority over creation and this woman, this church, the people of God, will rule eventually over all the nations. And we find out about this woman, the people of God, represented here in this wild way. It says in verse 2, she's pregnant. She was with child and she cried out, being in labor and in pain to give birth. She's in lots of pain in her labor. She's past transition. <laughs> she's in torturous pain. She may be in heaven, but this hurts. Then in verse 3, we meet another character in this story, this wild, heavenly picture of Christmas. Then another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his head were seven crowns. A great, the word for great in the Greek is mega. This is a mega dragon, red Seven heads, ten horns, seven crowns. Who is he? Well, he's red. He's, uh, it's a picture of violence, of blood. He's destructive. He has seven heads, which speak of him being very wise. And he's also very hard to kill. You cut off one of his heads, he's got six more. Then we see that he has seven crown, ten, ten horns, a sign of his great power. Horns are in Scripture are always a sign of power. And these seven crowns, crowns of ruling, authority, power. You see, this dragon is depicted as much more powerful than the woman. He's horrible. He's destructive. He's powerful. How can a helpless baby face this dragon? And in verse 9, we see who exactly this is. We already know, but... Verse 9, it tells us specifically, And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who was called the devil and Satan, 
who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. So this is Satan, the accuser. Satan means accuser, the accuser of the brethren who accuses us night and day. In verse 4, we find out more about him. His tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. With his tail, he sweeps away a third of the stars of heaven. What does this represent? Maybe a couple of things. Could be his desire to destroy creation and the beauty of what God has made. Some interpreters think it's describing the angels and that the, a third of the angels fell with him. That could be as well. Either way, the dragon wants to destroy what God has done. And so the dragon wants to destroy this baby who is about to be born. The dragon, Satan, knows the significance of this baby. God himself become man. And so he wants to devour the baby. That word for devour means to, to munch on and consume completely. This dragon wants to utterly destroy this baby. All those difficulties we talked about last week in Jesus' birth, the hard travel, the labor, the being rejected by family, the having to give birth out in the open probably and, and laying the baby in a manger and then Herod wanting to kill and destroy the baby and he kills all the babies in Bethlehem, all the male babies, two and under. And so in a dream, Jesus and his family, Joseph and Mary, are told to flee and they flee to Egypt as refugees. All of those earthly difficulties, Satan was behind it, wanting to destroy Jesus. Then we see the birth from a heavenly perspective. Verse 5 and 6. And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God so that she would be nourished for 1,260 days. Jesus is born. But from a heavenly perspective, this is the king. This is the Messiah, the one that's described. And and John here quotes Psalm 2, which pictures this Messiah who has come to rule over the nations. Why are the nations in an uproar, Psalm 2 says, and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his Messiah. But he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Verse 8, Ask of me, Messiah, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. And so John pictures Psalm 2 here and says this is the one who was born. This is the promised Messiah who was born and is caught up to the very throne of heaven to rule from there. Notice From John's perspective, the entire birth, life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus are all compressed into this one little verse. He was born, caught up to heaven, snatched out of the hands of Herod, who wanted to kill him, but ultimately caught up to heaven and ascended to reign with the Father at his right hand. You see, the incarnation... That's a big theological word. It means in flesh. When Jesus took on human flesh, 
his birth, his flight to Egypt as a refugee, his life, his death, and now his resurrection and his ascension. He was caught up to God, protected by God. It's all pictured in this verse. And then it says the people of God, the woman, flees. And she is protected and nourished by God for three and a half years, 1,260 days. You may recognize that, three and a half years. It, it happens, it occurs fairly often in Scripture. It's not literal. Whenever you see it, it means that the full, extended, complete time of suffering, seven years, is cut short. It's cut in half. God is going to cut it short that the suffering of the church, of the woman being nourished and having to dwell in the wilderness will eventually be cut short. You see, what it's describing here is the people of God today. The Jews and the Gentiles who have together become the people of God as they have believed in the Messiah, in this baby who is to be born. We today are living in the wilderness, but God is nourishing His people, nourishing His church We live on earth in the wilderness in a place of suffering and difficulty, but we're taken care of by God, and we know the time will be cut short. We know that he will return and set all things right, that evil will finally and completely be defeated. And this should be a great encouragement to us, brothers and sisters. God does have us in the wilderness for now. Life is hard, but he will care for us in the wilderness, and he will cut it short And come back again to set all things right. So back up for a minute. Let's just look and think about how different this is than the story in Luke chapter 2 of of Joseph and Mary and all that happened on earth. Here we're seeing a heavenly perspective that when Jesus came down and became one of us, it set these incredible forces in motion to defeat evil forever. And note that Mary's willingness to carry the baby to say, may it be done to me according to your word, set off this huge conflict in heaven as Satan tries to destroy the people of God and break apart the plan of God to redeem us from sin. What an amazing picture it is. Wild, crazy, but amazing to get a glimpse of what's going on in heaven. But then the question becomes, well, what what did that accomplish in heaven? We know what it accomplished for us, our redemption. But what in heaven did it accomplish? Well, I see four consequences in the next few verses that I want to highlight. Verses 7 through 17. The first consequence is that when Jesus incarnated himself, became a human being as a baby, this Christmas story happened on earth, that Satan and his angels were cast out of heaven. Notice verse 7 through 9. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. The dragon and his angels waged war and they were not strong enough and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old who was called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. Think about it for a minute. While the angels were going to, the angel Gabriel went to, Joseph and Mary to declare God's plan to have a baby born to them. And then there were angels who came and sang to the shepherds, glory to God in the highest, for unto us a Savior is born. There were other angels led by Michael fighting this huge war in heaven 
at the same time, set off by the birth of this baby. I've thought about that. You know, if Michael must have drawn the short straw, I mean, Gabriel, okay, who gets to go talk to Mary and Joseph, and then who has to fight this war? (laughs) Michael got the short straw, but there was this huge battle, it says, and Satan was defeated. He lost power. God said no more. He, the accuser, the deceiver, the murderer, the one who dies, tries to destroy creation. God said no more. He's defeated and he's cast out of heaven down to earth along with his angels. What that tells us is today Satan is a defeated foe. Those of us who are part of the kingdom of God, who have put our faith in Jesus, are protected from Satan. That's why the New Testament says, don't be afraid of him. Sure, he prowls around like a roaring lion, but James 4, 7 says this. Resist the devil and what? He'll flee from you. (laughs) He has no power over us. We're part of the kingdom of God and protected under that kingdom of God and nourished in the wilderness, protected from the evil one. We are cared for and Satan has no real power over us over believers. Amen? Amen. Now, he is still on earth and is the God of this world. Ephesians 2 puts it this way. Verse 1, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan, of the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ and seated us with him at his right hand. Yes, Satan is the God of this world. And as we look around us, we can see he's wreaking havoc in people's lives. But, The kingdom of God is also established a foothold here. And ultimately, Satan is a defeated foe. He cannot win. He was cast out of heaven. That's the first consequence of this earthly baby being born, Jesus becoming incarnate. Second consequence in verse 10 is that Christ's kingdom was established. Verse 10, then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. He accuses them before our God day and night. Notice it says the kingdom has been established. Jesus' kingdom has come. It's here. It's subtle. It's behind the scenes. But it is is here and notice the elements of his kingdom. Number one, salvation. His kingdom saves people from the dominion of Satan and from sin and sets them free. So every time somebody says yes to Jesus, yes, I believe in you. Yes, I I trust you and your death for me. He or she becomes part of Christ's kingdom and is rescued out of the domain of Satan and is given new life, transferred to a new kingdom. We become immigrants in the kingdom of God. We come as refugees from Satan's kingdom and we are placed in a new kingdom and given new life and new authority. Then it says this kingdom not only brings salvation, but it's powerful. It 
is a kingdom with authority. His kingdom is all-powerful, for Satan is cast down. That means that you and I can trust Jesus with our lives. Now, I know we look around and say, I don't see the kingdom of God at work that much. What I see is a really messed up world. Yes, that is true. But Jesus, it says, is sovereign over all the heavens and the earth. Satan can accuse, but he is a leashed lion. He can't get to us. Jesus said in Matthew 28, the risen Christ, just before he ascended into heaven, a wonderful passage in Matthew 28, verse 18, where he says, Jesus came up and spoke to the disciples, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And then verse 20, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, one day when Jesus returns, his authority will completely be realized through all nations, throughout all the earth. But notice what it says. All authority has been given to Jesus already in heaven and where? On earth. On earth. So though Satan is God of this world, he has no power. He's been cast down. Ultimately, Jesus reigns. The third consequence I see in this passage of what happened in heaven when Jesus became a baby was that believers are given authority over Satan. Notice verse 11. And they, that's us, the church, the people of God, overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony. And they did not love their life, even when faced with death. We're given authority over Satan. Now wait, you may say, he's still a lion, he's still a dragon. How can we, in our weakness, vulnerability, dependence, conquer him? Well, through two things, it says, through the blood of the Lamb. Satan loves to accuse, right? That's, that's who he is. You're worthless. You're a sinner. You deserve hell. He loves to accuse us. And we've heard those thoughts, haven't we? But we conquer through the blood of the Lamb. When we simply say, yes, I'm a sinner, but Jesus died for me. His blood has washed me clean. I have been placed in his kingdom. I am fully loved and accepted by him. So you have no authority over me. Get lost. (laughs) We conquer through the blood of the lamb. Secondly, we conquer, it says, through faithfulness to the gospel in the face of struggle, in the face of persecution. In other words, as we're willing to trust God even unto death, when we don't care if we die because Jesus has taken care of life and death for us, then we're set free. When we trust God like Jesus did in the Garden of Gethsemane and say, I don't want to die, but not my will, but yours be done. I submit to you and I'm no longer afraid. I'm willing to suffer whatever it takes, even unto death, it says. And we're not afraid to die for the gospel. Then we're set free free and we conquer Satan. It's when we're afraid and we have to protect ourselves and we're so concerned about living how as long as we can and we've got to hoard resources and take care of ourselves and take care of our life on earth and we're consumed with that, that Satan has a foothold in our lives. He can manipulate us and control us and accuse us when we fall into that. The author 
Johann Arnold says this, the fear of death overshadows all our lives. We live longer than our grandparents. We're better fed. We lose fewer babies. Vaccines protect us from once feared epidemics. High-tech hospitals save tiny preemies and patients in need of a new kidney or a new heart. But we are still mortal. And even if we have been successful in warding off plagues that decimated earlier generations, we have no lack of our own plagues. From addiction, suicide, abortion, divorce, to racism, poverty, violence, and militarism, we live, as Pope John Paul II has said, in a culture of death. He goes on to say, And so it comes down to this. The only way to truly overcome the fear of our death is to live life in such a way that its meaning cannot be taken away by death. This sounds grandiose, but it's really very simple. It means fighting the impulse to live for ourselves instead of for others. It means choosing generosity over greed. It means living humbly rather than seeking influence and power. Finally, it means being ready to die again and again to ourselves and to every self-serving opinion or agenda. When we choose to say, I'm not afraid of death because Jesus conquered it, and I'm willing through, to be faithful to the gospel to the very end. Satan is defeated. We conquer as the people of God. So the consequences of what happened on earth and how it affected heaven, Satan was cast down. The kingdom of Jesus was set up. Believers are given authority over Satan. But finally, Satan is really ticked off. <laughs> He's enraged. Listen to 12 through 17 at his anger. For this reason, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell on them. Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devils come down to you, having great wrath, knowing that he has only a short time. <laughs> Satan doesn't like the fact he's a defeated foe. And when the dragon saw that he was thrown down to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. But the two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman so she could fly into the wilderness to her place where she was nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. And the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman so that he might cause her to be swept away with the flood. But the earth helped the woman. The earth opened its mouth and drank up the river which the dragon poured out of his mouth. So the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her children who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Satan's still God of this world. He is real, and he will do all he can to destroy the people of God. But notice how this woman, this vulnerable woman, is protected. She's given wings to fly. The earth helps her and opens up to swallow this river. God limits the time of her suffering. God nourishes her in the wilderness and so on and on. You see, Satan can try to destroy the people of God, but he's a defeated foe and will not win in the end. Uh, that comes later in Revelation. <laughs> so, in conclusion, why is it important for us to see the Christmas story from a heavenly perspective? Not just an earthly, wonderful story in this great, Jesus became a baby, etc. But why do we need to remember Revelation 12? Well, I think because of the three things it shows us. Number one, what happens on earth 
is significant in heaven. What happens on earth is significant in heaven. The choices we make here on earth to trust Jesus. When you and I make a choice to stay faithful to God, to speak forth the gospel in the face of possible rejection, when we make the choice to turn away from pornography and get help with our addictions, when we make a choice to not give up in the face of an aging and hurting body, when we make a choice to not give our singleness or to give our singleness to God in the face of excruciating loneliness, when we do these things and more and remain faithful to Him, these things have heavenly consequences, and they defeat Satan. Number two, this shows us that Jesus has already won the war. We live in a painful war zone, and it's tough and it's difficult. But Jesus defeated the evil empire. It's finished. When he lived, died on the cross and rose again. There are skirmishes to fight. We are on the front lines. But the war is over ultimately. Salvation has been won. Death has no power over us. Hallelujah. And then third, this view from heaven shows us that life is not about the American dream. Everything going well, making sure we have secure borders, a strong economy, a nice house, a working car, making sure our life here is going well. Real life is in a relationship with Jesus, being part of the kingdom of God and beginning to have eyes to see how he's working to change lives and beginning to invest our lives in that kingdom, the kingdom where Jesus is king of kings and Lord of lords. So no matter what happens on earth, We can have life if we stay close to Jesus, engage in the cosmic battle of good over evil and make those little choices to choose the good and to trust Jesus and reject the evil. We are part of something far bigger than us. We are part of the kingdom of God. So as we enjoy Christmas this week and tell again the Christmas story, let's remember there's a lot more going on than just this baby being born in a manger. Let's remember the Christmas story from heaven's point of view. When Satan was cast down and the kingdom of Jesus Christ was established, when he was enthroned forever as king and Lord. Amen? Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this glimpse into the reality of what happened in heaven when Jesus was born on earth, when your son when you, Jesus, became one of us. May we have eyes to see this, to remember that Satan is a defeated foe and that you have all authority in heaven and earth, Lord Jesus. And may we live as citizens of that kingdom, first and foremost. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.